Hello. Hi. This is my best friend, Jen, and at her 30th birthday party, she had a bounce house and unicorn theme. That is true. <laughs> I said that because when I was when we were doing the ADHD episode, you talked about how on your 22nd birthday, you asked for two cakes. Oh, double deuces. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I wrote that down. Um, this is my best friend, Kelly, and she is an expert tonsil remover no that's not what's called not tonsils what's it called tonsil stone she is an expert i think you've already said stone. something about tonsil stones once before as Have a fact I? <laughs> I think so damn it okay here we go this is my best friend kelly and she i forgot my backup one it's okay it's okay 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 thank you but i mean still about those tonsil stones (laughs) y'all but just would like to note i've never removed any tonsils that's correct never a tonsil a couple weeks ago i like hacked up a tonsil stone (laughs) and i could not wait to text kelly to tell her because i was like oh i'm so excited that i now have the same experience that you have daily maybe (laughs) pretty regularly It has to be related to, like, what I eat or something, because it's cyclical, sort of, so I don't know. Interesting. You're welcome for starting the episode that way, everybody. Yeah. I I do think that we did that because that might have... We did a, like, trigger warning, we're going to talk about this gross body stuff, but I also think that's when I did that foot peel thing. Oh, yeah. It's because I have a list of facts to share, but apparently I don't delete them (laughs) after I've shared them. I'm really... I'm learning a lot. (laughs) Gotta find those strategies that work for you gracious but hey everybody what's up why isn't anyone answering hello bueller bueller uh what are we talking about today cal today we are answering listener questions about Mm. questions for a therapist what oh it makes me think of mfm's minisode yep we're it's so we're really moving up in the podcast world it's very exciting yeah thanks i was very impressed that we got any answers because we put out like a questions thing on instagram Mm -hmm. and was so excited that people responded to it i know me too and then i had a couple clients um who were like hey i saw your thing um here's my question and Mm -hmm. i was like that's so great thank you so much i love that yeah. So let's go ahead and dig right in. Yeah. Y'all, we just wrote them down and kind of, you know, in just this random order. And that's just how we're going to go through them. So. Yeah. No particular order, no importance, preference or anything like that or yeah. any logic. So the first question is, what would you tell someone who is scared to try therapy? Mm. Which I love that question. I do too. It's such a good one because I also think it's most people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. I think I would ask the question of like, ooh, what is scary about therapy to Mm -hmm. you? Uh, I think it's really natural if you've never been to therapy before and and maybe you've got some messaging from your family or something that like therapy is not like a real thing or like a an important thing or only certain people go to therapy. So maybe kind of overcoming some um, some of that like stigma and just. Yeah, when I saw this question, I was like answer kind of like that. Mm -hmm. And I found myself answering with a lot of questions. And so my thought kind of is, if you're listening to think about this question, and then try, like, listen to our questions that we're asking about it, and maybe reflect on those a little bit. And that might be what it would be like to be in therapy. Damn. Yeah, go Kelly. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> but yeah, that idea of like, okay, well, what are you scared of? Mm. Right? Like that would be a question that we would ask somebody if they were talking about that in therapy. Yeah, agreed. One, um, if you have also had a negative experience with therapy before and you're like, gosh, like I like I really do believe that this could be helpful, but like this has just not worked out for me in the past. One, I mean, do as much homework as you can about finding a therapist. Um, I'm sure y'all have heard me say this before. Like, I wouldn't like go to a new dentist or a new person to cut my hair without asking my friends. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So just like ask the people that you know, right? Kind of put a call out to people to be like, who would you suggest? Like, what do y'all think about this? And, um, And then have a conversation with that person. Maybe even when you send them an email or call them on the phone and be like, I've had some negative like experiences and I'm kind of like, just put it out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in just trying, I don't know exactly why this person might be scared to go to therapy, but thinking about possible reasons. So like one would be, I've had bad experiences in the past. Mm -hmm. Another one being like, I don't know what to expect or, Mm -hmm. um, 
like telling my deepest, darkest secrets to a stranger. It's like, okay, well, you don't have to tell us your deepest, darkest secrets. You can tell us whatever you want. And so Mm -hmm. in your first, um, I was about to say first episode, in your first session, they're going to ask you questions and you can say like, I don't want to answer that right now. Yeah. Or I'm not sure. Can we do that another time? Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. I think, again, the, we've talked about this before in previous episodes, but, like, making sure you're a good fit for people. So, mm-hmm. like, if you sit with somebody and you just don't vibe with them, like, that's okay. You don't have to go back. Yeah. Yeah. I always really encourage people, like, when I'm um, referring out for, like, a psychiatrist or something like that, I always say, like, you know, I would really encourage you to go to them, like, twice Mm-hmm. to really see because first time can kind of be like eh, yeah weird right? or uncomfortable yeah for just lots of reasons i mean you're feeling them out they're feeling you out and so like you know give it that second try and then like if you're like this just doesn't feel for whatever reason like the right fit like that's okay and also they they'll be fine with that mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah like don't worry about um their reaction so another thing that i think people are scared about is like they're worried that they're gonna activate or uncover things that they have either minimized or aren't sure, like didn't realize were things, you know, whatever. And my answer to that is like, all of that stuff is already inside of you. It's just coming out in a way that you may not recognize. And that's probably why you're thinking about going to therapy anyway. And so going somewhere and helping get like clarity and um, like conscious, oh my gosh, conscious awareness of what's going, like I'm so irritable all the time and I don't know why. And then it's like, oh, well, have you ever thought about this? Like you're kind of, hopefully you'll get some answers that will make things seem more, at the very least, more understandable, like the lights come on or whatever. And that is a really exciting thing. So all that stuff that you might be scared about is probably showing up somehow already. And so Mm -hmm. what better way than to have like a safe, intentional place to let that stuff come out? Mm -hmm. Well, and the other thing that I always also really emphasize with my patients is like, I'm here that way. You don't have to do it by yourself. Like right. we get to do this work together, yeah, right? Like, the end. <laughs> yeah. Like you have a partner um, in that process and, and a partner who really is hopefully. And I think in most cases like trained to navigate those things for you. Mm-hmm. So, yep. So hopefully that answers that question mm. at least somewhat. I mean, there's so many reasons, like so many ways you could answer that, but yeah. But also, we are all scared of new things. Right. Especially if you really don't have, um, like, kind of a reference point for it. Like, if you don't really know anyone who's been to therapy, and and so you're just not sure, and so maybe you just have a, an idea in your mind of what you think it would be like. or Based off all those shitty TV shows that we talked about. Right. right. So, I mean, like, you're kind of supposed to be a little bit nervous and maybe a little bit scared, and that's also kind of part of the process. So maybe let yourself feel that way mm-hmm. whenever we were just talking in our ADHD episode and um, we were talking about like, Oh, if you think you have these symptoms, like if, if you think that you are like struggling with some things or you may have symptoms of something, like I think it's worth a shot to, to call around and maybe try to make an appointment. Mm-hmm. Like I think that you are more likely to be glad you did than, and regretting the the choice to do so. Yeah, it feels like how some people will say, like, I don't want to go to the doctor because they're going to tell me I'm sick. It's like, you're, if you're sick, you're sick, whether you go to the doctor or not. So if you're dealing with something, whether whether or not you go to therapy, like, it's still a thing. So yeah. go somewhere that you can get help dealing with that thing so you don't have to do it by yourself. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah. Such an excellent question, though. Mm-hmm. Probably one most people have on their minds. Yeah, for sure. Okay, next question is to is how to find tranquility in a world of hostility can you please tell us kelly (laughs) (laughs) i'm like um i'd love to be able to answer that how do you i think that um having the expectation of having appropriate expectations that tranquility is not a state of being it's another like or not a consistent state of being it is a experience that you have that is temporary just like all other experiences Mm -hmm. And so noting that you can create moments of tranquility in a world that is hostile in many moments Mm -hmm. um, versus being able to create consistent tranquility, like nothing can get through my Mm -hmm. shield because good vibes only or whatever. It's like, no. So having appropriate expectations about that is my first answer. Mm -hmm. And then this is going to sound like an annoying answer, but if you know stuff that you like or stuff that makes you feel relaxed or stuff that feels good to you do more of that 
Mm. I know that's kind Mm -hmm. of annoying, but like that is really the answer. It's like if you find peace when you go hiking, go hiking more. Yeah. And I know that that's, I'm even annoyed at my own answer because I'm like, well, you might not have access to that or whatever, but you can create the experience of hiking, for example, mentally for yourself through things like meditation or like it makes me think about resourcing with EMDR. Mm -hmm. You can create mental experiences that elicit physical reactions for you. Yeah. And so if you find a moment of tranquility, for example, in hiking, that's on my mind because that's what I like to do. And I did it yesterday. Sit down, close your eyes if you feel comfortable doing that and like picture the last hike that you went on. Mm -hmm. Think about what the sensory experiences of that were, like what was the temperature? What did you smell? What did you hear? You know, all of that kind of stuff. And you can create those experiences mentally and have physiological responses to them. Yeah. Something that I used to do, um, God, I hope this doesn't sound stupid. <laughs> um, <clears throat> if like I wanted to go shopping or something and I didn't have the resources or, you know, just whatever reason, I would watch like shop with me videos on YouTube. Yes. <laughs> yes. Right? People being like, come with me to Target. And I would just like watch people shop around and like talk about what they That's bought. That's a great and, idea. Um, and I would just kind of be like, oh, okay. Like it would just be kind of fun and like a little bit silly, but like. And not that it wouldn't make me want to go shopping, but just, I don't know. It was just another way to kind of experience like Mm -hmm. the same thing. So, yeah. That's really funny that you say that because when I was thinking about how to answer this question when I was driving home yesterday Mm -hmm. and I thought about shopping as like one of those things like, oh man, I really like shopping. I was also thinking about like the dopamine ADHD stuff and it's like, okay, so a lot of people who have ADHD have spending problems, but you can create that same feeling by thinking about it. And so- having the caution kind of warning of like, it might be a trigger for behaviors, yeah. but that idea of watching that, that's just funny that you yeah. said that. <laughs> Never even thought of that. Well, and I hope that this doesn't now take the question to the woo-woo place, but um, like, what does tranquility mean to you? Like, what does that mean? And I think really in today's world, when things do feel very hostile, it is like, how can I fe- How can I find moments where I find meaning in something or I feel safe? And so sometimes that's spending time with people who feel safe and you have meaningful connection with. Because anytime I think we feel really seen by the people in our lives, that can just really give us a felt sense of safety that can really help with, again, some of that dopamine, serotonin stuff. So that's really helpful. Um, And also sharing some of those experiences. Like you're not the only person that feels like the world is really hostile. Mm -hmm. And I think that it can be really helpful to express that and, and build connection with others over how are they experiencing those same type of things and what has maybe been helpful for them. Yeah. And I think that idea of it goes back to the expectation piece of like, Okay, if the world the world is can be very a hostile place. And so if we try to pretend like that's not a thing, we're doing a disservice to ourselves and our experiences. Like, again, good vibes only is not a healthy thing. Like you have to have a place for the negative stuff. Um, But thinking about hostility from a curiosity perspective and this is i need to take my own advice here because i can get really amped up thinking about all the Mm -hmm. negative things or the hostile things but like okay why is this causing distress for me or what's going on here that feels threatening and then so like if okay politics if you're feeling hostile about politics well what's feeling threatening to you Mm -hmm. and there and then is there another way that you can tend to that need so like i'm feeling threatened because um, bodily autonomy. Okay. So what's something that you can, that you can do to address the need of having bodily autonomy? Yeah. And then that might help temporarily to Mm -hmm. bring some relief to that. Well, and we can switch out some of these words a little bit. Like if you are feeling that the world is too chaotic, maybe that even feels like a synonym a little bit for hostility, like then what are ways that you can find more peace in your life or that you can kind of disengage from the static? Or if you are feeling like very plateaued in your life, what are some ways that you can have more novel experiences or just try some things new and think a little bit out of the box, Mm -hmm. right? I think those are, we all get into a place where we have too little or too much of something and then we have to kind of troubleshoot to, okay, how do I resolve this or make this better? And I think it's just tapping into some of that stuff. Okay, why am I kind of feeling this way? What is the experience I'm having? Okay, and what may feel, what's my unmet need here because of that? Mm -hmm. And how can I tend to that? Yep, exactly. Great question. Mm -hmm. I love it. All right. The next thing was more of just a, the next couple things were 
more of like, this is an issue. And so it does not necessarily a question, a question, but like, what would a therapist say about this thing? Um, so boundaries with friends was the first one that this person offered. Um, my first response is listen to our episodes about boundaries would yes. be a starting point, but a couple different things. Well, do you have any immediate thoughts about that? Okay. No, <laughs> okay. I didn't know you looked like you might've been about to say something. So a couple of different thoughts being, okay, boundaries with friends. Does that mean identifying what they are for you, how to set them, how to enforce them or maintain them? Like, what are we talking about? Um, and so first of all, like identifying those areas. Um, second would be, or the second thing that comes to mind, I guess, is when I read this, the thought that I had was like, okay, how to set a boundary with a friend. A hundred percent. Yeah, that was my first inkling about yeah. it. So if you know what the boundary you want to set is, I would, I mean, it depends, right? That's the annoying answer from us all the time. But like, okay, if I was setting a boundary with you, it would feel scary maybe just because it's uncomfortable to set boundaries, but I would have a felt sense of safety and being able to do that. And so maybe reckon, maybe you can make a list of like, what are the things about this relationship that make me feel safe and respected? Mm -hmm. And then how can I tap into those things to help me set the boundaries? Yeah. And I also think recognizing that a lot of times, not always, but people don't have an idea that, that you need something or you have a certain experience or opinion about something until you really share it with them. Um, So also recognizing that piece, like sometimes when we feel like we need a boundary with something, it's probably because we haven't communicated or someone doesn't know that that, that something unhelpful is happening within the relationship. Um, But then we can also look at, okay, what if I've tried to set boundaries with my friends and they don't seem very amenable to them or they seem like they are receptive to it when we set it, but then for whatever reason, the boundary keeps getting crossed. Mm -hmm. One of my clients this past week said we were talking about this new dynamic that they have. And um, they were talking about how they set a boundary with a person. And I was just so proud. Um, But they started it by saying, you know, I want to bring something up because I know you care about me. Oh, I know. I I was like, Oh God, (laughs) so many good things to say. It was Mm -hmm. wonderful. But they said, you know, I want to bring this thing up because I know that you care about me. And the other day you said this thing and I want to let you know how that affected me Mm -hmm. and to ask you to not do that again in the future. And I was just like, perfect by starting Mm -hmm. it with, I know that you care about me. Oh, yeah. Well, it's the whole idea of like the compliment sandwich thing. Like, yeah, what is the what's the experience that you want that person to have when when you want them to hear something from you that feels really genuine and maybe a little bit vulnerable? Like, what's the best way that you can kind of package that so that way it feels safe for both of you? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's really important to take into account there. I had a session with a patient, oh God, over a month ago, I think. And she said this brilliant thing, uh, like your, you know, like your patient did about trying to set a boundary with someone. And after the session, I texted it like to our little group chat of our, our little, the, our little three little triad therapy friends. And, um, and then I told my patient the next time I saw her that I was so excited that I had to share it. And she had said, I need y'all to get your shit together so that I can feel safe in your energy. Mm-hmm. And I was like, girl, Mm-hmm. Now, you know, I mean, that's one way of saying it, but I was just like, wow, good for you to be like, y'all, because like, you know, something really messy was happening and she'd been trying to navigate it, trying to navigate it. And it was just not being help- helpful. And then finally, she, you know, she kind of reached into her rope a little bit, but I just love that she mm-hmm. said, so that I can feel safe in your energy. Yeah. Because it was like two people had, like the dynamic was two people really having a, a challenging situation happen and it was impacting her. She was adjacent to the situation, mm-hmm. but she was like, y'all need to get this together. Cause you know, it's impacting me. So. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So great to, pri- so that's another thing is like, pri- what is the outcome you're looking for? Mm-hmm. Prioritizing your own like well being, And then is that something that can exist in that dynamic and asking for that? I think also maybe, just for your, like something you can do internally is inquiring like, okay, what's making this hard for me? Mm -hmm. So is it because I've never set a boundary with this person before? Is it because I've set it, but I'm not enforcing it? Is it because I'm setting it, enforcing it, and they keep crossing it, like figuring out where, like what the issue is. And then 
having a conversation or reflection with yourself of like, what are realistic options that I think could help me deal with this? So Mm -hmm. if it's like, I keep setting this boundary and keep trying to enforce it and this person keeps crossing it, maybe that's not a problem with the boundary. Maybe it's something about that relationship dynamic as a whole. Or if it's like, I set this boundary and then I never enforce it. Well, that's something that you've got to do independently is Mm -hmm. figuring out like, why aren't you enforcing it? So all these different kind of thing. So, and you can come back from that. I know we talk about this in our boundaries episodes, but like if you set a boundary and for whatever reason, it's been hard. And so you weren't able to enforce it. Like you can still come back from that and be like, I know that I said this and I just never had, you know, really good follow through with it. And that may have been confusing to you, but this is important to me. So what can we do, you know, to move forward? And I know a lot of times when I'm speaking to patients about things like this, they may say like, that makes me feel really vulnerable and I don't like feeling vulnerable Mm -hmm. and vulnerability is such an important part of the human experience. And like mama Brene says, like we really can't have meaningful connection with the people in our lives if we don't practice some level of vulnerability. So lean into that. Yep. Great job. Thanks. Um, next is dating or meeting new people in a new city and saying like, I'm scared to go out and date or meet new people in a new city. So, oh, moving somewhere. I have so much empathy for that. Yeah. When I first read that, I was like, oh God, I don't know. Cause I've never done that before. And it sounds so scary. I haven't done it lots, but as a military child or, you know, child of a military family, I have had to do that. And it is terrifying. Like, I really do have so much empathy for that. I guess I did do uh, it one time when I moved here. Sorry. <laughs> uh, internal thoughts that had to come out of my mouth, but go ahead. Um, the last time I had to move, well, I was like four months into my um, freshman year of high school. My brother was a junior, four months into his junior year, and we moved. And moving during high school is so terrifying and borderline traumatic, to be honest. Um And it's just such a challenge. I mean, I think also part of the reality is like, you've done it. Like you've moved to the new place. And so, right. So how do you throw yourself into, let me try to have new experiences. Let me have, let me try to have a good time. And I think part of that is like, what's the expectation here? Mm -hmm. Is it, I want to go meet people and for them to become my absolute best friends in the world. Like that seems like a really huge hill to climb. So is it, I just want to have new experiences with new people? Like, how do we, how do we start that process? How do we take the first steps um, into that? Yeah. Like pacing yourself at building Mm -hmm. those relationships, because I agree it's not fair to yourself or to the potential new people you're dating that like you're going dating or meeting as friends, Mm -hmm. like that they're going to be your best friend or you're going to get married or whatever. It's like, I just want to have a new experience that Mm -hmm. overall feels positive, safe, you know, all that kind of stuff. So that's another thing is like, okay, well, what are you scared of? Mm -hmm. And if it's a safety thing, like, okay, how do you address that? Or if it's a vulnerability thing, okay, well, how do you deal with that? And so knowing that you're going to, you're going to be scared. Oh, yeah. But also, oh, I really want to emphasize this point. Like, we are always talking about whether it's in session with patients or in general, and I think it's come up on the podcast, like, adults are always asking, how do you make more friends mm-hmm. in adulthood? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, if you reach out and you're like, hey, I'm Jen, you know, and you introduce yourself to people like, they may be really excited that you're doing that and taking the first step. And I know the first step is the scariest step, Mm -hmm. but um, I think you may even be just surprised about the response that you get from some of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So another, I was like, watch a Brene Brown Ted talk before you go out and do it. So you can just have like that pep talk or that, Mm -hmm. you know, reminder of what vulnerability is and how important it is and how rewarding it can be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also like allow yourself the space to participate or to go to places that may feel more opportunistic, right? Like it's really hard to make friends or meet new people like in your own home or or your apartment, right? (laughs) That doesn't really happen. Um, So what are ways, you know, that you can just capitalize on things? Like Mm -hmm. if you're out at a brewery or you're at a dog park or, I have no idea. Um, you're out living your life. Like, mm-hmm. how do you capitalize on those things? And I I think that we talked about this in the dating episodes too, but the idea of like, it feels embarrassing to say because it's kind of like, well, that's silly or whatever. But I mean, you can literally Google like small talk conversation topics or, you know, mm-hmm. pop culture things or just the idea of when you see somebody wearing a cute sweater or whatever mm-hmm. you say, I love your sweater. Like just practicing 
having interactions with people that you don't know, even if they don't last long. So like when you go and you're checking out at the grocery store and, you know, you like the cashier's glasses or whatever, Mm -hmm. like just bringing that up and saying it just so you can practice like talking to people. Yeah. Yeah. I do think that um, being in a new place almost gives you an advantage for talking points because you can be like, what's the best place to like grab a drink or who has the best cup of coffee that's locally owned? Mm -hmm. Like, I think that there's probably a lot of things you can be really inquisitive about. So I think that that can also kind of be almost a fail safe talking point for just some of those things. Um, Also, I think the idea of it's, it can be exciting because you can look for new types of people that you've never hung out with before. Like yeah. when you're used to being in your own hometown or where you live before or whatever, it's like you kind of get in your comfort zone. But now when you live in a new place, pretty much everything is outside of your comfort zone. So if you've been like, I've always really thought roller derby was really interested, but I was always embarrassed to try it. Like, well, now you can go try roller derby and you don't know any of those people. So if you go and you don't like it or they make fun of you or whatever. It's like, okay, don't go back and you probably will never see them again. Yeah, honestly. So, well, I know that invent yourself. I know that so many people are like, join a this, join a book club, join a soccer league, join it, which I mean, like, honestly, those aren't bad suggestions. Like there's so many rec leagues for things, even more than I even realized. Um, So you could always do something like that. If you're someone who maybe works remotely, go find a place that you can work from like a locally owned business. Um, you know, joining a gym or some kind of place that focuses on fitness, like, right, if you join something that maybe isn't super large or something like that, those are some really good opportunities to make connections. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just hope that you, you really kind of put your mind on trying to be a brave little toaster, because I think that especially in the beginning, the process is so much more important the re- than the result, like mm-hmm. putting yourself out there and stuff is going to just yield so much good stuff in the long run, regardless of how quickly or how many friends or, you know, partners you find. Yeah. And just because I know what, who this person is that this question came from, I would like to remind them that you moved to a new country all by yourself. That's <gasps> like the bravest thing that a person has ever done. So oh my goodness, you already have that skill. She's like a brave little air fryer or something like that's a level up from a toaster. <laughs> yeah, we're not just a toaster. We got we're an instant pot. We got all these different functions. <laughs> like you're brave as hell already. So oh, yeah. remind yourself of that. Well, and I have never moved to another country, but I hear that there are so many like expats groups, like in other countries, just from people who have moved from the U S into, you know, European countries and stuff. And so I've always heard that like people like expats tend to really find each other and stuff. So, you know, look into what, what does that mean? Is there a Facebook group or a, I, I mean, I don't know, but I would imagine there are some resources for that. Yeah. The internet can be your friend and not replacing, but like in helping you find things. So. Oh, excellent question. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I talked with this person about that outside of this situation or whatever, when they first moved to that country. And I was like, I cannot believe you are so brave moving to this other country. And I was just like, that is so I'm so jealous and envious of that. Yeah, no kidding. One of um, someone I know recently told me they had been going to um, like a bar studio for like six months now, maybe longer. I'm not sure. And she was telling me a story and she was like, oh, and, you know, from bar. And I was like, did you make a friend at bar? And I kind of felt like an idiot asking that, like, oh, did you make a new friend? Mm -hmm. But I was just like, oh, my God, that is so amazing. Like, way to go. Being a 30-something-year-old woman and like making a new friend. Um, I don't know. It made me excited for them. So, yeah, love that. Love it. Okay. This next one is similarly like another topical thing, which this one is hard and I don't know from experience, but the topic of losing a parent. Mm -hmm. So my first thought to that is there's more than one way to lose a parent. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, it could be through illness or death. It could be from moving. It could be from estrangement, you know, Mm -hmm. Sometimes losing a parent is a good thing for you, like a healthy thing. And sometimes it's a not healthy thing. But either way, it's all complicated and comes with lots of feelings. Yes. Oh, I think it is. I think it's a huge challenge to figure out a grief mourning process for yourself because grief tends to make other people very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And I think if you're there in the thick of it, you know that more than anyone else. And so really getting support and that does not have to mean therapy, but that can be very helpful. And I will also say like, if you're wanting to seek therapy for grief, 
I would really make sure that the person that you're seeing is well-versed in grief. Yeah. Um, specializing in yeah, grief. Yeah. But there are so many grief related support, support groups. Like I know here in the Midlands, there's a group for um, people who have lost their pet. Mm-hmm. Um, like the American foundation for suicide prevention has all kinds of amazing grief support groups um, for people who have lost someone to suicide. And um, I know that there's a bunch substance of use yeah, substance use disorder or um, a lot of hospitals have grief groups that may be specific to an illness that someone may have passed from. Um, so there are a lot of resources like that because um, just sharing your grief and, and sitting in that process with other people is so important. And it, you know, it really leads us out of the isolation that grief kind of puts on us. Yeah. And I think it's another benefit of that. There's so many benefits to like a group kind of oriented process, but seeing other people who are resilient and moving through grief and still being here. Right. Yeah. So like not the idea of like moving on with your life. Cause the, I don't think you ever really move on. You move through and forward of things like grief, but just knowing that like, it's still okay to enjoy things and it's still okay to have fun. And it's still okay to cry when you feel like you shouldn't. And like all these, like, it's all okay for you to do that. And so, yeah, a group kind of thing, or even just like reading books or, you know, watching YouTube video. I think YouTube, maybe this is just me because I don't utilize it enough, but I think YouTube is a very underutilized resource when it comes Mm -hmm. to not just entertain, like things beyond entertainment. Oh, agreed. You know? Agreed. When I first hear of new therapeutic concepts, the first thing I actually do is go look for a YouTube video because you can just find people who explain something very concisely in like 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. And then I can be like, I do want to read more about this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And also that piece of like grief is a chronic thing. So you can actually maybe move through a therapeutic process, um, really allowing you to grieve in a way that feels like helpful and meaningful. And you may feel considerably better after that but then something may happen you know along down the road where you're like oh wow i guess i'm not over this you're not really ever over grief right it Mm -hmm. just gets um a little bit easier i don't think it ever actually gets better and so like allowing yourself to like have grief come up in moments where maybe are unexpected and allow that to be maybe more reflective and not to internalize that to think that we become then self-critical about that process. I think another component of this too, losing a parent specifically is if there's like unfinished business between you, or if things, if those relationship dynamics were unhealthy or, you know, something that brings up negative stuff, basically Um, identifying what I'm going to talk through this as I say it and then make, decide I don't like it but the idea of like okay what what are the unmet needs that I have regarding this relationship and is there a way that I can meet those needs myself so like reparenting yourself basically from the perspective like so say you and your parent the last conversation you had you had a fight or something and then identifying like okay the thing that feels distressing about that to me is like I don't ever get the chance to apologize Mm. okay well what what can you do about that you know how can you what would apologizing give to you? Does that mean that that person knows that you loved them? Does that mean that you don't feel like you're a jerk? Like, what do you need from that? And yeah. how you can get those needs met individually rather than just from having that person, like, forgive you or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed. Well, and I think that's about, like, how can you honor the relationship even after someone has passed? And that can mean lots of things. That can mean honoring Um, all of the comfort that relationship brought and the really pleasant, positive memories you have from them and wanting to take that with you and then trying to honor maybe the hurts that were part of that relationship. And I've worked with several patients where um, they had pretty like negative dynamic with their parent and then their parent becomes ill and like terminally ill. Mm -hmm. And they're like, fuck, I feel like I can't be mad at my mom anymore for the ways she didn't show up the way I wanted her to as a parent because she's dying. And it's like, no, no, those, all those feelings still exist. And you can be sad and upset that your parent is dying, but still also be like, well, they're an, they're, you know, a fallible person and I need to work through some of these things. And maybe that changes the way that you do that and that you have to do it a little bit more individually instead of allowing them to be part of that process. But all that work can still be done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Man, that's tough. Mm-hmm. My answer might completely change 
in the future when I have that experience. So yeah, I think that's another piece of it is like those experiences are so individualized that even just, first of all, I think we should have said this at the beginning, but like all of these are very brief answers to oh, yeah. <laughs> greater issues that require more digging into them. But just that idea of like, just because we're saying one or two things doesn't mean that if you have another process, it's wrong or oh, that yeah. ours is the only way or whatever. So, mm. okay. Moving to the next thing, S- switching gears a little bit, but was becoming a therapist, a childhood dream or a happenstance career? <laughs> We talked about this a little bit in our first episode. Um, not a childhood dream for me. <laughs> not that I was like, ew, therapy. <laughs> but um, something I never considered until I was probably 18 or 19. Yeah. Mine was always like, I always knew I wanted to help people. I just didn't know how or in what capacity. And then, I don't know. It's interesting. Memory is a weird thing. Because part of me is like, I don't ever remember like wanting to be something else. But that doesn't mean that I knew I wanted to be a therapist. It might just be like, I don't know, every kid is like, I want to be a a pilot or a nurse or, you know, whatever insert here. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I don't have any strong memories of ever wanting something different. But I don't I also don't have strong memories of being like, I'm going to be a therapist when I grow up. So yeah, it feels like a little bit of both. Like, childhood dream of helping people and the happenstance was that therapist is how I did it. Yeah. I never really had a dream that was specific to helping people. When I grew, (laughs) when I, I was like, fuck people, (laughs) figure it out yourself. Um, no, not at all. I, as a child and for the longest time I wanted to be an astronomer, Hmm. I was like really into the planets and I was like, I'm going to work for NASA. I didn't know that. Yeah. And I was like, and I'm going to have a NASA shirt right uh, now. uh, And, um, and I was like, and I'm going to have a tattoo of Saturn on my ankle. Like, that was what 10-year-old Jennifer thought. Isn't that very specific? Well, yeah. And especially because we said that we were going to get the Saturn and Moon tattoo. Oh, That's so perfect. Um, and then at some point, I, I lost... Sa- Hold on. Why Saturn? Saturn was always my favorite planet because all the rings. Right. I mean, it's so pretty. Gotcha. Um, and then at some point, I just kind of lost interest. Like, kind of just grew out of that and didn't really... Um, I don't know what happened then, but then for like, I mean, the majority of my life, I was very focused on a career in journalism and being very excited about the new like print journalism and the news. And I know I told this story before, but yeah, then once I was in my senior year in college, I was like, oh, I don't, I don't want to do that (laughs) just for whatever. I just never connected with my journalism classes. And I was like, oh, I think that I wanted to do this for so long that I thought it's what I always wanted to do when I don't. Um, Yeah. And then after I graduated, it was like, I was just kind of thrust with this idea of like, oh, if you are interested in this, then this is what you need to do. And I was like, I think that's exactly what I need to do. And then I just did it. It did. It does feel happenstance to me. I also, I think this is an interesting question, not necessarily about the specifics of us becoming a therapist, but like, how do you choose a career in general? Because culturally in America, we have, well, capitalism we have this mentality of like monetize everything yeah and so you know there's that phrase like if you love what you do you'll never work a day in your life or whatever and it's like well maybe but also can't i just like things for the sake of liking them and not having to monetize and so how do you pick a career like all of that is i feel very lucky that i i think that i'm the exception to the rule that i was like i'm gonna be a therapist and then like became a therapist and never really was like oh god do i I don't know if I want to do, I mean, Mm. you know, this whole, like, I didn't really have to try to figure it out. Like I always kind Mm -hmm. of like wanted to have a plan or whatever. And that idea of like picking a career feels so scary. Yes. Whenever people are struggling with that, like people in my personal or professional life, I have so much compassion for them because of how just challenging that can be to feel really adrift in what you want to do with your life. And I do actually consider myself lucky Mm -hmm. in that. Yeah. I was like, okay, I think that is what I want to do. And then I did it and I lucked out with my internship. My first one, the one that I met Kelly working in and that I just loved that population and that I've continued to love it. And even when people will sometimes be like, God, Jen, when you leave work today, you have to go see five like patients. I'm like, these are incredible people that I'm so lucky to get to sit and share space with. Like, and yes, sometimes I'm really tired and I would rather go eat dinner. Um, but 
<laughs> but it's fine. Yeah. That's, that would be true regardless of the job that you had. Yeah. <laughs> I also think something that you said triggered a thought in me and this, I don't mean to be critical of this phrase that you said, but that idea of like, what do you want to do with your life and having that be associated with what kind of job are you going to pick? Mm-hmm. Reinforcing like that the importance of picking your career is what you are yeah. going to do with your life. And I don't think that you said anything wrong. Mm-hmm. It's just like, that's the culture that we live in of yeah. like, when you meet somebody, what they ask is, what do you do? Yeah. You know? And so it's like, we really prioritize or um, place high importance on what people do as a career, as part of their identity. Yeah. And maybe if we individually, hopefully culturally sometime shift away from like, Oh, you're a person outside of your career. Maybe those choices won't be as hard to make. Yeah. Well, and I always say like we spend so much of our of our life at work yeah. and during the week, most people spend more time at work than they ever will with their family during, you know, Monday through Friday hours. And so I think it is really important that you like your job and that and hopefully you're someone who gets to have a sense of fulfillment from that. And I also know that that's like a lot of pressure. So, yeah, I also think that when it comes to like picking a career or a job for me and maybe again, this is because like I always liked being a therapist that what you do is not as important as some of the other like Mm -hmm. who you work with what in what setting you work how much you get paid what the flexibility of your schedule is like i like the i work by myself and have a lot of flexibility and i mean i work alone as far as employees go but i get to talk to people that i really like every Mm -hmm. day but if i had to sit in an office and no matter what kind of work I was doing, had to talk to people that I didn't like, mm-hmm. I would really hate that. And yeah. so it's not just about the type of work that you're doing, but like, what are your work values around, you know, mm-hmm. lifestyle and all that kind of stuff. So I don't know that this person was necessarily asking <laughs> for how to how to pick a job, but that's what it makes me think about. So, yeah. Okay, next. What happens if I tell a therapist that I am suicidal? You are the expert on this, so I'm going to let you answer most of it. <laughs> you just did a whole training about it. I did. I just did a two-day training on suicide intervention. Um, I think a lot of things can happen when you tell a therapist that you're suicidal. When you tell anyone that you're um, suicidal. but um, Gosh, it's like what should happen if I tell a – you know, there's yes, different yeah. answers. What, what should happen – is that we want to assess for that. What's the level of severity with the suicidality? And that means like, are we feeling, are we actually having thoughts of death? Right. Which is a little bit different. Um, That's more of like a depressive symptom of God. What would it be like if I wasn't here or I want the pain to stop? Yeah. Those are all right. Those are thoughts that are kind of related to suicide, but they're not directly related to. So I'm going to go make this happen. So that's kind of one piece of it. But then we can be having passive thoughts of suicidality, right? So we can be like, um, wow, I'm really thinking of killing myself. And like, what would that be like? Or almost like kind of daydreaming about what are the ways that I could carry out something? What are my options, right? And then what we call active um, suicidality, that would be I have a plan and I have the means to carry the plan out, so if you were going to use like really lethal means, like something like um, a firearm and you have direct access to a firearm, okay, then that is a very active plan. Yeah. Um, so based on the severity of, of that kind of thing is really what needs to be the response. And so we always want to use what's called the least restrictive means. So if you don't have to be hospitalized, we don't want you to be hospitalized, right? But a lot of times when someone has um, active suicidal ideation, then a lot of times we have to activate emergency response, which means that you you may need to go to a hospital or to an inpatient facility just to keep you safe. Um, but sometimes we can actually disable the plan, right? So we can make a plan to make sure you don't have access to a firearm or, or maybe what that plan might be and that you can do um, maybe 24-hour monitoring with the help of someone else. Um And then sometimes it's then we just need to create a safety plan together. So we need to go through like, okay, what are some of the triggers um, to why you're coming up with with some of these responses of of feeling suicidal? And like, what are some coping skills that we can utilize? Who are some healthy supports that we can help be a part of this process? Um, How do we know if maybe our our supports aren't working or our coping skills aren't working? And then what might need to happen next? So with safety planning, 
Um, we really want that to be a collaborative effort. So not like these are all the things that I'm going to do to you as the therapist to the patient, but like what's going to be helpful for you. Let's figure this out together. Also thinking about what are different protective factors and things like mm-hmm. that is another component. Um, yeah. What are protective factors? Protective factors are things that like make life worth living, I guess you could say. So for example, mm-hmm. you know, your family or faith-based things or your dog, or mm-hmm. you have a party next weekend that you really want to go to or yeah. whatever, just different things that, you know, yeah, make you want to still be here. Yeah. There are also things that can support resilience. Mm-hmm. So like a protective factor, a lot of times is being part of a therapeutic process or yep. having a friend who can work through a crisis with you or that you are very aware of, know how to utilize the crisis line, right? Like all these different things that are like life sustaining. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, so I think it's important to say like some things, if you have an experience where you tell a therapist that you're suicidal and they brush over it or don't ask questions, or even if you don't tell your therapist you're suicidal, but you're indicating things that might point towards that, that they should be asking you, like therapists should all be comfortable asking those questions about like, okay, like I've took the training that you've done before. And one of the things is, You know, sometimes when people lose their job, they might be feeling suicidal. Are you feeling suicidal? And so just really recognizing that we're all potentially one crisis away from feeling that way. And so destigmatizing it. I think also the language that people are using is really important. Like we don't use commit anymore as part of the language. It's not a crime. Right. Killing yourself is not a crime. So we don't want that to have a legal connotation. Right. Um, I also think that depending on if a person is kind of chronically suicidal versus acutely and Mm -hmm. actively suicidal, there's different approaches for that. And so just having open conversation is basically the biggest thing, you know, Mm -hmm. therapists need to be comfortable with dealing with that. And like, not that you have to be like, Oh, it's totally fine. I never have any feelings. If a client tells me that they're suicidal, it's totally great. But like, cause of course you care about these people and you want them to all be okay and be healthy, but you have to, have skills. Like I think that dealing with suicidality as a therapist is a skill that you have to practice and develop. Oh my gosh, a hundred percent. And there are just so many ways that um, we've even been taught in the field uh, about managing suicidal risks of patients where they're a little bit outdated. And there's like all these places that do really great research into suicide science. And so um, it reminds me of the substance use field a lot because like we're always doing more research on it to try to do things better. And in a in a way that really reduces stigma and stuff. So I think also as a therapist and anyone who's listening, who's a therapist, like really try to keep up to date on some of that data and information because, you know, like not using the word commit anymore. That used to be the only way we talked about it. And um, we used to talk about, you need a contract for safety with someone. Mm. Now we do not use the word contract for safety and we don't ask people to promise us that they're going to stick to their safety plan because we know that that actually creates disengagement between the patient and the therapist. If for whatever reason, the person needs more support. So, um, so I hope you feel safe enough to tell your therapist or, or a safe person in your life. If you're feeling that way. And there are so many resources. Um, you can go to livingworks.net. You can go to AFSP.org. Um, There's just so many amazing things like out there on the internet to help people. And most states have some kind of suicide prevention, like initiative through their local mental health departments. And so there's just lots of really good stuff out there um, to inform yourself, whether you're someone struggling with thoughts of suicide or you're just worried about the people around you. Yep. And just a little add on is that suicide's not like an individual problem. It's a public health issue. And that is the way that it needs to be addressed. So agreed. Which is a good segue into the next question, which is how can I support my friends struggling with mental health? Mm. It's unfortunate that my first thought is like, well, I can tell you lots of ways not to. (laughs) Um, To me, it feels like that answer or the question, I don't know, the answer and the question, like it's so easy to identify the wrong things, but it's a lot harder to identify helpful things. Yeah. Um, Well, and a lot of times when this comes up, um, 
people want to be like, especially um, this came, this question came from a patient of mine. And so, right. They've been, they've entered into a therapeutic process that's been very helpful for them. And so they want the people around them to not be, you know, riddled with challenges or kind of suffering through what they may be experiencing. And so it is like, wow, I found so much helpfulness in this process and I just want other people to feel better. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, just that reminder that like, we can't fix other people or save them from their feelings and a lot of times when we try to do that, we create some some codependent dynamics. But um, yeah, how can we be supportive to someone um, without taking on too much responsibility for yeah. that person? Yeah, I like how this question is phrased of how can I support versus how can I help? Mm-hmm. Because support is supporting versus yeah. help feels more like action-oriented, like responsible kind of stuff. So I think one of the things that you can do to support friends who are struggling with mental health is have good boundaries mm-hmm. and have conversations with them about what those boundaries are and why you have them and all of that kind of stuff while also normalizing and validating feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, asking your friends what their wants and needs are. And then if those are things that fall within those boundaries that you have, then you can do those things. So like if you say, if Jen were to tell me like, okay, I'm feeling really anxious. And then me ask like, okay, is there anything that I can do to help? Or like, is there something that you need that I can take off your plate for you or, you know, whatever. And then you can say yes or no mm-hmm. based on, you know, I think we, we already know what our boundaries are, like before yeah. that kind of yeah. conversation. So yeah. well, and when we want to empower people, we want to do that through the process of choice. Yeah. So asking people, how can I be helpful? Not making a lot of assumptions about what we would find helpful in that moment. But also you can share from that perspective of like, I know when I'm really anxious, this is what helps me. Like, could, maybe could I do that for you? Would that feel good? Mm-hmm. Um, also, I think one of the greatest ways to really support the people around us is to be open about what is your process. Um, you know, I never think people need to share things that they don't feel comfortable sharing, like be mindful of your own boundaries. But it can just be really helpful to say like, you know, I see a therapist every week. Have you ever thought about seeing a therapist? Mm-hmm. Um I mean, that's one of the reasons that I'm never shy about telling my patients that I take mental health medication because I'm mm-hmm. like, hey, guys, I take my meds just like everybody else because mm-hmm. um, it just makes that conversation a little bit more open to be like, hey, I'm in we're, we in the same boat here. Um, so that can be really helpful. And also, if you know that you're trying to support someone with a mental health like challenge and they're already seeing a therapist, like asking, like, is that something that you brought up with your therapist? Like, mm-hmm. you know, what have been the ways that's come up in session for you? And, and, or if not, like, oh, wow, I wonder, you know, what's going on that you don't want to bring that up? Like, you don't think that would be helpful or. Yeah. Or even asking like, well, what, when you talk to your therapist about it, like, what did they say? What was the feedback that you got? And yeah. then have you been able to implement that feedback or not? Or is this basically like, is that therapist a good fit for you? Essentially? Yeah. That kind of thing. Well, and also, unless you are someone's therapist, you don't have to be someone's therapist. Right, right. <laughs> um, and so also remembering that, I think that goes back to that idea of wanting to save other people or fix their problems for them is like, just remember, like, you're not their therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that can be a, a good w- lens to look through when trying to think about your boundaries about that. Yeah, I think also, uh, don't be a dick. Yeah, like, just don't be don't say like, Oh, it's not that bad. Or have Mm -hmm. you tried that? Have you tried exercising? Mm -hmm. Have you tried just like not being anxious? Or any kind of standard responses like, um, you know, everything happens for a reason or God's plan, like all of that kind of stuff. Like, all of that is more of a response that people give, because they feel uncomfortable and want you to not have your feelings. So Mm -hmm. I would gear more towards asking questions rather than giving answers to people. Yeah. Um, and then you can help them, you know, mm-hmm. clarify or whatever. But also, I'm part of me is like, but that feels therapisty. So I'm having like a <laughs> moment of what's the line between therapist and you know friend or whatever i will say that like a lot of times if people come to you and they are talking about the struggles that they're having with their mental health that is an opportunity and maybe even they're looking to just be heard or having a or have a cathartic release because a lot of times once they have said something out loud and they've externally processed it people feel a lot of relief from that that's not going to resolve something but or if they're like, yeah, no, I haven't said that to my therapist, like, okay, well, I, I just heard you saying it all to me. Like, I think I think you might be able to, mm-hmm. you know, to rehash this again for, you know, for your therapist or, or whatever that is. So like, if nothing else, listen, 
be attentive. Yeah, hold space. Yeah. I mean, I think those really are the best things that you can do. Yeah. And just validating. Yeah. Validate, validate, validate. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. We ha- we're probably going to go over a couple minutes today, but we have only three questions left. So, all right. Because we're at like five minutes now. So, we might be 10 more minutes or so. But how do I not get angry with my spouse with ADHD? Y'all, this is not my question. <laughs> uh, but uh, such a good God bless, one, right? Uh, um, and we could probably, you know, change out ADHD for something else. But yeah, I think that that piece of like, okay, my spouse needs extra reminders for things or, you know, doesn't typically do something the first time I ask or starts lots of projects around the house and doesn't finish that. And you're like, okay, I know that this is a symptom, of ADHD, but I don't want to give them the free reign to be like, well, I have ADHD. So I guess you just get to live with it. Well, I also think like you're allowed to be angry. Yeah. It's how you and annoyed. Yeah. It's how you interact with that person. I think also a big piece of this is it depends on what that person is doing to help themselves. Mm-hmm. Like, so if you're, if your spouse needs extra reminders, but they don't set reminders for themselves and only rely on you to do it stop doing that and tell them like it, you know, it feels like it's not helpful for to me to give you the reminders because I'm can't always be around for you or because I don't want to be responsible for that or whatever. So like maybe here you set reminders for yourself or, you know, whatever. So it really depends on like what that person is willing to do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also that piece of like, okay, so then if I do have to ask you several times to do something, like it would be helpful for me if you also don't get angry and annoyed knowing that you're someone who really needs help with prompting. Mm -hmm. Um, I think so much of that is about managing your expectations. Um, One of the, like, this used to be very annoying to me for my husband is like, it's very hard for him to sit down and like watch TV with me or watch a movie without getting up and like going and do doing something for like 10 to 15 minutes and then coming back. And I used to just be like, ugh. But now I'm just like, okay, like if we sit down to watch something, like I'm not going to pause it because you get up. Like I just made it like, okay, he's going to go do that and it's whatever. And I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. Um, just to let that attempt to like impact me less. Cause I don't need to let that impact me so much. Yeah. If I was talking to this person or if somebody asked me that question and I have some clients who have spouses with ADHD and they don't have it. One of the things that I try to remind them is like their symptoms are not personal to you <clears throat> and validating that it might feel personal. Like Travis doesn't want to watch TV with me. That feels personal. Mm. And then it, like validating, like I can see why that would feel personal to you. Like, facts aren't feelings aren't facts though like what Mm -hmm. what is actually happening and can there be space for both of those things like i can feel like he doesn't want to watch tv with me while also holding in my head like he can't sit still for a long time or you know whatever and then how those things interact with each other and so just trying don't try not to tell yourself a story that this person Mm -hmm. is doing these things just to piss you off yeah well in any relationship you have with any human We are always balancing within that relationship. What do I need to find acceptance for? And what feels like I need to bring up for us to have a plan to troubleshoot? Yeah. Right? Like, I have found acceptance for the fact that he can't get through a 90-minute movie with me. Like, that really is fine. But right when it's some of these other things, I'm like, okay, this to me feels a little bit more important and and a little bit more detrimental mm-hmm. um, to our lifestyle or our relationship. And so those are the things it's, it's like choosing your battles. Yeah. And, yeah. Mm. Well, and also having um, awareness, which kind of goes with the personal thing, but like, what is it about this that is activating to you? Like, so is mm-hmm. it because I'm taking it personally? It feels like they don't want to spend time with me. Or is it because like, they leave their tools out in the middle of the floor and then our child steps on a box cutter or whatever. Like what oh, God. <laughs> tried to think of something that wasn't too gruesome, but that's what I came up with. But like what, you know, if that's the, if it's the second scenario, like that's more of a safety issue than yeah. it is like a hurt feelings issue. Yeah. And not that hurt feelings don't matter, but hurt feelings are something you deal with individually mm-hmm. versus like a safety issue. We got to work together on this. Yeah. Fair. So. Well, and again, like change that out with anything else. Like, yeah. How do we manage, other people finding understanding and acceptance for some things, whether it's our own mental health disorder or whatever. And some people really want to be informed about their partner's, um, you know, mental health challenges. And so it could be, you know, is there a book out there about being married to someone with ADHD? There are plenty of Mm -hmm. books out there about that, right? To just help you kind of understand their perspective a little bit more. Because my brain works very different than my husband's brain does. And sometimes I think everyone's works the way mine does. Mm -hmm. So I have to be reminded. Well, and I also think um, 
this can be the last thing before we move on, but, um, oh God, it's leaving me. Oh, uh, trying just like how we said in the ADHD episode, like you can't parent ADHD out of somebody. Mm -hmm. You can't partner somebody out of having ADHD. You can't like the idea saying to your partner, like, have you ever thought about picking up after yourself or whatever? Like, of course we have thought about that. That is not helpful, (laughs) you know? And so trying to like, don't, I'm trying to balance that with not being critical of the, of the spouse without ADHD, but the idea of like being a nagging person, yeah. like that, if that hasn't worked, it's not going to start working. Which honestly, I think that does go to don't parent your spouse. Right. Right. I'm, in all the couples counseling that I do, I've heard, I've heard a lot of people talk about resentment that they have because they have felt like they've had to parent their partner before. And so, yeah, if you're feeling like you're in that place of, of nagging or, or, or right, you're taking on so much responsibility for your family or for the partnership that you feel like the parent, like, ooh, okay, then there's some work that we need to do with that. Yeah, I think one of the biggest challenges about relationships in general, regardless of what kind they are, is that idea of, and this is something that I ch- like deal with every day and try to work through, is that just because somebody doesn't do it my way doesn't mean it's wrong. Oh, yeah, just difference, not wrong. Yeah, and and accepting that because that is really hard for me yeah next (laughs) that's another Uh, episode how do you know when you're ready to date again kelly (laughs) (laughs) um so many go back and listen to that relationships Mm -hmm. episode but so many different things i think it depends on what are the reasons you think you might not be and then Mm -hmm. what are the reasons that you think you are and really unless it's a like safety or unhealthy dangerous kind of behaviors the idea of like Try it and see how it feels. A hundred percent. Yeah, just go on a date. And then if you're like, whoa, don't go on another one for a while. <laughs> right. Yeah. I don't think that you will know until you are there. Yeah. Which is frustrating. Yeah. And for people who have anxiety or like want to control things or whatever, yeah. like that idea of having to the unknown and not knowing how you're going to feel. It's like, mm, yeah. yeah. Um, one of the things that our brilliant friend Nicole has said to me um, like in our kind of consultation about patients is she'll tell people, and I have since stolen this from her, like, you can't have a good experience unless you let yourself have some experiences. Mm-hmm. And I think that's also the thing that's so specific to dating of like, we get so worried, we're going to have a negative experience. So we don't have any, but you can't have a good one then. And yeah. so, right, just allowing yourself the opportunity and Maybe looking at that as like, okay, I'm going to use this as a temperature gauge of whether I'm ready or not. And I would also encourage people to think about like, okay, how have you been taking care of yourself? Mm. And if you like have been using healthy coping skills when you're feeling distress, or if you have been, you know, spending time with friends or what, like, how do you know if you're ready to date is based off of how you are at taking care of yourself. Mm-hmm. I guess, which kind of goes into this last question of how do I stop looking for validation from men? And we could say, and women too, like whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, But are you feeling like you're ready to date again because you are looking for validation or because you are using that as a distraction from your own stuff? Or is it like, because I want to share my life with someone? Yeah. So. Yeah. How do we stop getting validation from the opposite sex? Hmm. I know that so often when that comes up with patients that I'm serving or the same sex if you or the same. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, from romantic partners. Um, I know so often that's because there've been a lot of unmet needs in childhood. And so we're looking to have those needs now met by a romantic partner. Um, I also think sometimes that is about like what makes validation from a romantic partner so much more powerful than the validation I'm able to provide myself or that I get from other things or other people in my life. Yeah. Why are you valuing the Mm -hmm. words that others say more than the words that yourself has? Mm -hmm. That is such a tough question. I think some of the seems to be a theme for a lot of these answers, but like figuring out what needs you're having. Mm -hmm. So stop looking for validation. Okay. So Take it a light layer deeper deeper than I have the need for validation. Okay, but what kind and what does getting mm. that need met mean about your other needs? So if it's like that I feel physically desired by people, okay, what's that about? What's mm. that? Like keep going under and under and under of like, mm-hmm. what's that about? What's that about? What's that about? And investigating that. And so seeing if those are needs that you can meet yourself or through yeah. 
friendship or, you know, other areas. Yeah. And not that, like, it's also okay to look for validation from people of the opposite sex or same sex, like romantic partners, as long as it's not the only thing driving that. Or, like, if you get that validation and then you leave those relationships or, like, like need more information, basically, is <laughs> yeah, the answer yeah. to that question. Well, and I think for a lot of people, you can start that process with deconstructing, deconstructing sociocultural factors, right? Like, yeah. I feel like um, if this is a, a female who is really wanting validation from from men, then what does that mean about females wanting to get validation from the male gaze or like, like you can kind of deconstruct like the patriarchy and taking a feminist perspective on that. Or maybe if it's even in a same sex kind of capacity, then like, what are those things that we're told about, you know, the box that we want people who are, you know, who are gay, lesbian, bisexual, like, what is that exactly about and trying to figure out where's this messaging coming yes. from. And and maybe if we can realize some of that, we can figure out a way to maybe overcome some of that or to um, reframe that messaging into things that that are more kind of meaningful for you. I also this might seem like a weird answer to this question. And again, it depends on the context for it. But how do I stop looking for validation from men? <laughs> I might, this is one of those things I might say it and then not like it, but um, ask for it instead of looking for it. So like if you're in a relationship or dating somebody casually or whatever, saying like, hey, I really like it when you compliment me on how I look at night or whatever. And then if that person is like, OK, cool. And then they tell you, hey, you look great tonight or whatever, because I think the the looking for part of it mm-hmm. is the thing that makes me think some of your behavior, you're changing your behaviors to seek something rather than just asking for it. So like, I'm looking for validation from men about how I look, for example. So I wear clothes that I'm not comfortable in, or I, you know, drink too much at parties and then like dance on the table or whatever Mm -hmm. versus just asking for your needs to be met. Yeah. So, or just seeking ways that your needs can be met in maybe a more consistent, healthier manner. Right. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, y'all, we appreciate so many of these questions. Yeah, and give it was us more. Please. It was fun to go through them. We're always wanting to answer the questions um, or also maybe using that as inspiration for a future episode. So, so this can't replace professional um, therapeutic relationship. Uh, disclaimer there. Disclaimer, disclaimer. <laughs> yeah. Yes. All right. Are you are you ready for the joke? I'm ready for the joke. Okay. <laughs> Hopefully you tell it in the right order. <laughs> what do you call a magical dog? I don't know. A labracadabrador. <laughs> <laughs> I really like that one. I know. It's a good a one. A labracadabrador. Do you know how hard it was for me to hold that joke in this notes app and not send that. it to you directly? Yeah, I do appreciate that. Y'all, we've stopped sending voice notes with jokes to each other because now we save them all for you guys. <sighs> no, and then we don't record for like a month and then it's like <laughs> painful. Yeah. A labracadabrador. That's really good. Yeah. Share it. Share with your friends. Thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah. Follow us, subscribe, review, love us. Do all the good stuff, please. And please comment, interact with us on social media. I know that we would love to be a little bit more active than we are, but we are, you know what, doing it in the way that feels best for us and in the way we can keep up with. But um, we always would love to hear your, your voice, your comments, and whatever that is. Yeah. As long as they're nice. Correct. That's us <laughs> asking for our needs to be met rather Please. than seeking them. Awesome. All right. Okay, bye. Bye.